Hi folks, welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host Simon Ward and it's my goal to help you upgrade your human performance by guiding you towards improved sleep, nutrition, fitness, mobility and stress management. If you can work on improving just one of those, you will be on the pathway to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your athletic performance. If you are interested in joining me on this journey, please check out my SWOT Inner Circle, where you can enjoy a 30-day trial period for just £1. Please email beth at thetriathloncoach.com or look for the link in the show notes below. Now on today, a very special guest, a lady I met exactly 20 years ago. Mimi Anderson is one of the world's most inspirational female distance runners, having made an incredible journey from stay-at-home mother of three to multiple Guinness World Record holder. With hard work and determination, Mimi has shown that it's never too late to fulfill your dreams and achieve the impossible. Pushing herself to the limits has strengthened Mimi's resilience and taught her its importance in boosting her mental and physical health, especially having suffered with the eating disorder anorexia for 15 years. Hearing Mimi speak about amazing experiences with honesty, humility and humour will leave you inspired to seek out personal challenges of your own and be much more aware of how to develop your own resilience and well-being. Since we met at MDS in 2001, Mimi has chalked up numerous ultra event wins, records and achievements, including first female to complete the Double Comrades Marathon, breaking the female John O'Groats to Land's End world record in 2008, which has recently been broken, doing the Double Badwater. I mean, I'll say more about this. Badwater's bad enough. Double Badwater in 2011, that's just double bad. And just as an aside she set a female course record as well she was also the first female to complete the double spartathlon Uh, we've got a link to all of Mimi's achievements in the show notes so please do make sure you scroll there because it's way more impressive than this list I absolutely love this conversation it was a proper catch-up and I felt like we got straight back into chatting like we did in that tent 20 years ago in the Sahara Desert and we talked about lots of other things including school days not mine, hers, eating disorders, addictive behaviours and training for endurance events, going further and breaking records, her most hellish and the most satisfying challenges so far, building resilience, dealing with setbacks, disappointments and learning that she wouldn't be able to run anymore, learning to swim at 50, the fun in planning your own adventures which is well pertinent in the last 12 months, preparation for ultras, is it fitness, mindset or a bit of both? mental toughness is it nature or nurture daily routines and habits of a champion life lessons from ultra events and why writing a book is like running an ultra take it one step at a time so let's crack on with today's guest welcome to the show after 20 years of us being apart marvelous mimi anderson hello simon how are you I'm fabulous, maybe. I couldn't say marvellous, could I? That's yours. It's sort of no. almost, almost trademarked. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, but it's so nice to see you. I can't believe it's 20 years. I, I don't think you look any different to uh, MDS. Maybe you're a bit cleaner. <laughs> I'm a bit cleaner and sort of slightly different coloured hair. Yeah, I'm now yeah. white. Yes, yes. Oh, well, more wrinkly. For those people who are listening um, who don't know the backstory to this, uh, in 2001, as a way of um, raising some money for the hospice where my mom passed away, I decided to enter the MDS. And Mimi was, we, we, in those days, I went on my own. Um, the second time I did it, we had a prearranged tent grouping before we went. But in, those, in that time, I went on my own. I met up another guy in um, 
when we got on the plane. And then when we got to um, Morocco, we met these three lovely ladies, of which Mimi was one of them. They were called the Tough Mothers, although we did nickname them something else as we went along. Did you? We did. I, maybe I shall tell you that in private. Um, <laughs> so Mimi was one of those ladies. So uh, it's and it, uh, given the timing, it probably April 2001. It's, it's pretty much, you know, a 20 year anniversary, isn't it, this? It is. It is. And we, um, I still, I raced around for a long time with those girls, actually, Louise and Max. Yeah. Um, oh, it does seem, you know, yeah, it seems like yesterday, doesn't it? And our tent was, as you said, you go back all those years later and, and people actually have prearranged tents. Mm. So they know who they're sharing with. We didn't have any of that. And it was a case of meeting people you liked in the hotel and going, do you fancy sharing a tent? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, isn't it? I was put together with a guy called Graham Hedger. I don't know if you can remember Graham. Graham, I, uh, I know Graham really well, yeah. Turned out Graham owned all the property where they filmed Notting Hill and everything. He, he was this quite an assuming gentleman who, who apparently was very wealthy, but we ended up sharing a hotel room on that first night. And then the next day, I think we had to kick around at, at the hotel, didn't we, before we yeah. were transported out to the desert. And um, Graham, I think Graham had met you. Um, so he said, oh, I know these three girls. Maybe we should ask them. So we asked you and Max and Louise. So that was five. And then um, did you know one of the um, – had one of your team met uh, Tim and Ben and Dave and um, the guy we called Psycho, whose name I can't yes. remember. Yeah. <laughs> no, me neither. Um, yes, I think they had. And so they came and shared the tents with, with us. Um, and so, in fact, they got in contact the other day, or, or Tim did anyway. So yeah, yeah. it was really nice. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, I knew Graham f beforehand before we went out oh, and then okay. we went out separately and we, we'd signed up separately. So I, actually that was really nice. I think my husband felt comfortable that he was there just because he thought, well, that's all right. He can keep an eye on Mimi. Well, I mean, Graham was so fast every morning. I mean, off he went and yeah. he was back way before us. So, you know, we had to give him the, the task of getting into our, you can't even call it a tent. What, what do you call it? A Berber. <laughs> but, but it was like a large piece of tarpaulin across some some sticks. some large sticks and held up by some smaller sticks in the corner. But as soon as a, a sort of like a moderate breeze came, it all fell down, didn't it? And, and yeah. it did and that it did several times. Night. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But his his um, job because you know served him right. He got in way too early every day. Was that he had to clear all the stones. Oh. Underneath the, uh, <laughs> an impossible, run. an impossible task when you are <laughs> when you're situated on a rocky plain. I know, but yeah, it, but the tent worked really well. And we used to take it in turns to be on the outside of the tent, which was the um, bit that fell in. Yeah, and you got really quite cold at night, so it was quite nice to be um, in the middle. So yeah, it was great. Isn't it funny how you you suddenly remember that, and it all comes flooding back. What? Um, what what are some of the other things you remember about that tent? And I can the things that the things that stick in my mind were um, being out in the desert for two days and having all this lovely French cuisine, <laughs> you know, almost almost like a sort of like a campsite hotel um, that the organisation provided for us. And then as soon as the race, we had the the, the final yeah. meal on Sunday night. As soon as the race started, that was it. Then we were on our own, and it was powdered food and um, energy bars. It was. I do remember those sort of. Um on that day as well, and then but walking around in bikini tops. Because, yeah. you know, you had to get a suntan, didn't you? I mean, that mm -hmm. was terribly important. You know, it's so stupid, isn't it? And then you sort of felt really upset when you had to hand the bikini, you know, back in your luggage because you just couldn't possibly carry it with you. But I do remember we laughed a lot. We yes. did laugh a lot. Yes, yeah, and, and by golly, we could hear your laughter, Mimi, you and Max. 
we were quite loud, weren't we? It's awful. The, I, I can also remember on that first couple of days, everybody was very shy in all of the tents and would walk miles to go for a number two. Oh, yes. And try to go and find a bush that was on top of a sand dune too that, that you could see. But by the end of the week, I remember being there. Everybody's feet were so blistered. Nobody could do any, be bothered to do any walking other than that, which, which was required to get to the end of the stage. Some guy basically crawling into the area in the middle of all the, all the tents and in full view of everybody, just digging a little hole and squatting there without any shame and then walking off. Well, no, and that was, that was the taboo area, wasn't it? You know, yes. you could go out, but you couldn't go in. Yes. I think, I think that was a Japanese girl. Oh, I, well, I remember a guy doing it, so maybe, you, you, saw, you? maybe you saw somebody else. But um, <laughs> Lots yeah. of people being naughty. But I do remember, I think for me, one of the, the, the times that I thought was just absolutely fantastic and I used to love was in the morning when they woke us up at some ungodly hour. And, yes. you know, it wasn't quite light at that stage. And they literally ripped the tent or the canvas away from you. And then... You, you know, you had time to sort your bag out and get your breakfast and then you had to put everything into your bag because they literally, they rolled up uh, your rug from underneath you, this yeah. great big rug. But I remember sitting on one of the days on this, this rolled up rug, looking at this fantastic sand dunes that we were about to go up and over. And, you know, the sun came up and you just mm. think, actually, do you know something? This is so much better than a five-star hotel. It, you couldn't beat anything like that it, it that was quite magical yeah i remember that that moment um because there was like 150 tents was there maybe 100, yeah, 100 tents 150 yes, yeah. um there was quite a lot of british tents there was also quite a lot of french tents because it's a french organization i remember that the british got their tents rolled up way before the french who seemed to get an extra hour and a half to lie in every morning meanwhile we, we like you say we were still asleep and they wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't do stand on ceremony, would they? Basically, had four of them picked up one of those big sticks each and basically lifted the whole tent above you and then dumped it down on the sand behind you. <laughs> and then they started gabbing away in, in uh, uh, Moroccan or something. <laughs> At least what, that's what it sounded like. And um, I remember Psycho from his from his sort of sleeping bag starting to try and imitate what they were what they were um, saying and sounding very funny. But they just looked at him quizzically and then walked on to the next tent. Oh, they walked off, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. No, it was, uh, it, yeah, the mornings were just, it was a bit of a shock to the system. But actually, to be quite honest <coughs> with you, I don't think any of us slept very well anyway. So you were sort of in and out of consciousness all night, weren't you? And especially if then you, you had a sandstorm or something and the tent got blown away and you're literally sitting there <laughs> holding down this tent. Well, I can remember um, we'd go to sleep and it would be, you know, the first night... It, it, no ambient light. You're in. You're almost on the equator. So it, it's when the light goes out. It's like somebody turning off the lights. And it was like half past seven. And of course, none of us used to go into bed at that time. So everybody was just sitting there, like, well, what do we do now then? So everybody just started lying there. And I remember lying on top of my pack, on top of my sleeping bag, in a pair of running shorts, feeling and a and a sort of this silk liner t-shirt that I got, feeling really warm and thinking, well, this is quite good. And then. By two o'clock in the morning, the temperature had really dropped. But also, we'd, we'd put, you'd, you'd arrange your backpack so it, it cut off the breeze. And then in the night, the breeze seemed to turn 180 degrees. So all the sand was blowing into the tent. When you woke up in the morning, your eyes are full of sand, your sleeping bag is full of sand, your shoes are full of sand. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm. There was no, and the sand remained for weeks and weeks and weeks afterwards. Oh. <laughs> Wash your clothes, it, and it was coming out of everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, happy days, eh? Who, who would have thought that on those moments when we were on that long stage, walking through the night, hallucinating and blisters throbbing, that we would talk about this so fondly? I know. I was really ill, actually. Um, on that, you were. I re- oh, yeah, yes, I had my, I remember, my drip. Yeah. I had the IV drip the night before because I'd sort of collapsed and things. Mm. And, um, and I just, do you know, it's funny what you think about when you're feeling that ill, you know, when you, when you um, are that badly sort of dehydrated and things that your body just wants to, well, you just want to curl up in a little ball and go to sleep and, and, and not be woken up. You just, you haven't got the energy to even think about anything. But Mm. I do, but I do remember sort of being taken to the, um, to the main bit of the tent and then at the back, they had an area where they uh, dealt with people like me, so the, the people who were badly dehydrated. And there were about six guys in there, and I was the only girl. And this is an awful thing to say, but I do remember going in just thinking, I'm the only one without a bed. I really want somebody to leave now because I just want to lie on the bed. you know. And then after that, I didn't care. I just rolled up and turned over and wanted to go to sleep. And eventually, you know, they picked me up and they, they put me on this bed and gave me the IV drip. But uh, it's a little bit like having a gin and tonic, those drips. Fab. You know, one minute you're feeling really awful. I mean, mm. really awful. And a couple of hours later, or a few hours later, as it starts to work, is woo. <laughs> it's like having a gin and tonic. It's I, great. I remember after my first Ironman race, which is, which is a few years before doing MDS, that... Uh, Somebody had said, if you can get a drip, do that rather than drinking lots of fluid. Because after 12 hours on the go, your stomach's in turmoil anyway. So I remember that you could you could ask for a drip and um, they would just you'd, they'd put you on the bed and plug you up to one and then you'd feel so much better afterwards. As, as time went by in races, I think they got wise to this. So I, I used to have to pretend, uh, uh, have, you, um, uh, have you been drinking? Well, I haven't had much to drink since the start of the bike. Okay. Um, have you been to the toilet recently? No not for about seven or eight hours I did and my urine was very dark I'm fe- actually and I'm I'm feeling a bit uh, woozy and lightheaded now and oh can I sit down here no you better come into the medical tent and we'll lie you down there so uh, it had to become more and more elaborate sort of blagging your way in to get a drip um lying there sort of no oh, I think I probably need another one please God, no, yeah. I, well mine I was genuine there I did actually need it so yeah I had five bags I think in the end and a, well, um, don't, they have a limit on the number of bags of intravenous strips you can have now because I think we all remember James Cracknell's uh, MDS thing where, you know, he was trying to be the top place Brit, wasn't he? And uh, and they put him on a drip and he was like, if you have more than this, it's a disqualification because you, you've clearly pushed yourself too hard. And uh, I think he, 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 if my memory serves me rightly, he even said, no, I don't want any more drips in. I can't, I can't be disqualified. Yeah, because I think I wasn't allowed, after that wasn't allowed anymore, because I know when we got to on the long stage, mm. um, when we got to the halfway point, I mean, I was in a really bad, bad, bad way at that stage. And we got to the, uh, the, the, the camp and you can see all the, you know, the runners going off in the distance with their head torches on. And, the, and it, I mean, it was fantastic, beautiful. But when we were sitting on this, on sort of the hill like this and, um, yeah, it was really, really windy. And Max and Louise were fantastic. So, right, come on, I'll make you some your teas. I mean, I just, again, just wanted to curl up in the ball. Mm. And I couldn't have any more drips at that stage. Anything that went in came straight back up again. So, of course, I wasn't getting any fluid. So they were able to give me sort of um, 
an anti-sickness pill. Mm. And the medics actually made us stay for a few more hours. They said, you can't leave till light. So, and like, so of course, my camera crew, our camera crew were going, oh, where the hell are they? You know, why aren't they here? You know? <laughs> I, I remember now the camera crew. Yeah, I remember um, your, your husbands had, had teamed up, hadn't they, to, to pay for that, I think. Is that right? Well, I think we had as well. I think, but yes, I think Dave and um, and and Tim and yeah, I think they they'd sort of done done that. And then we, I think we didn't really, sort of, they didn't really make a film about it in the end. I think I can't remember what they did. We mm. had a few adverts from it. Um, yeah, I can, things, I can remember it to start with. It was all about you three, and by the end, it was the whole tent became sort of like uh, oh, uh, six, yes. six, six other extras in this sort of film about the tough mothers. Yeah, but that's how it should be. I mean, I've still got all the recordings for it, so it's, really, you know, yeah, which is quite fun. So I must get them digitized at some stage because you I must. Think it's quite fun to sort of have it all. Yeah, well, that's the start of your journey, isn't it? Really, it is absolutely. Let's talk about how you got to that point then. So uh, when you were at school, were you, were you sporty? What, what, what sort of school did you go to? Um, did you um, play went, hockey or lacrosse? Or Yes, I did, did both those. Yeah, I went to a boarding school in um, East Sus- West Sussex. I, I loved it, actually. I really enjoyed it there. Um, and because my, my father was in the army, so it was easier to send me. Well, I just got sent off to boarding school because they were traveling too much. And yeah, we didn't do athletics because I'm such an old fart now that athletics was very, didn't start until actually, fun enough, I left school. But we did do, um, you know, hockey, netball, rounders, all of that. And so, yeah, and I played all of those and I was quite good at it, even with my, and I had asthma, which I still got. And so I always used to have a sub um, for the team uh, just in case I got my asthma got really bad and I'm just the poor sub I'm, they must have got so bored of me because I refused refused to sort of ever give in and let them take over um but yeah so that that's what I did I, I you know so from a sporting point of view I, I was a team team sports person rather mm. than an individual wow and I think you were 36 when you did MDS in 2001 so you you must be the same age as me then you know, sort I was of like 30 so I thought it started running in 36. So yeah, I think I'm probably oh. a bit younger than you, aren't I? Not much. 63 were you born then? 62. Ah, oh, I'm early 64, so there's not much. Oh, I see. Honestly. I know I'm, 50, I'm 59 this year. Oh, well, we should talk about what the 60th holds for you then. I'm sure there's some sort of challenge coming up soon. Um, so... Uh, School days, but what happened in between then? So leaving school, it, you didn't start running until you were 36. What, what were you doing in that interim period? Um, well, I sort of, well, lots of things. I sort of left school and uh, I discovered boys, actually. I discovered that life was great fun. And so there was lots of drinking going on and uh, lots of smoking going on and lots of parties. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I also had, when I was at school, I'd had my sort of eating disorder. So that continued through into my sort of, I suppose late 20s um I got married very young so I got married at 22 had my first child at uh, 23 so I became a mum very um so quite young which I quite liked actually I never planned it I think if uh, if I'd planned it I would have been a much older but actually I think it's better not to plan these things um because when is ever the right time mm-hmm. for me it never would have been so um that that was that was good and yeah, and I used to go to um, go to the gym. So leotard, you know, the leotard t- mm, time and, yeah. and leg warmers. Leg yeah, warmers, yeah. Jane Fonda. Absolutely. Feel, feel, feel the burn. 
<laughs> I used to love my leotards, the brighter the better. And so I did a lot of step classes and all of that. And I never, ever went, I never ran. Um, I, didn't, uh, I didn't get on the treadmill. Uh, didn't do any of that because I was, I think, quite self. I thought in a class I felt quite safe because nobody could see me. That was all right. But it, it, you know, if you ever got on the treadmill, you think, mm, no, can't do that. People might be watching. Um, mm. Yeah. So until I was thirty-six, and then I got on the treadmill for the first time. Um, do you mind if we talk about your eating disorder then? Because I know you've, you've you talk about that publicly. How um, you, you said that started when you were in your teens. So did that start at school? And yeah. do, do you do you have you ever sought to understand what, what was the catalyst for that? Yes, uh, I didn't discover it for many years. Uh, so, yeah, it started, it's the classic, isn't it? So, 14, 15, um, and then the girls at school. I, was, uh, I, I never thought about my weight, actually, mm. ever. Um, I never thought of myself as either particularly fat or thin or anything. I was just sort of me. And um, the girls at school would then start teasing me about, um, you know, that I was fat. And I paid no attention to them. I thought it was just so silly. But, you know, it kept on, kept on going, little jibes all the time. So eventually I thought, like, well, perhaps, perhaps they're, they're right. Perhaps there is something in it. And I remember coming back from a, I think it was a summer holidays or a particular holiday at school. And one of my friends at school who was taller than me and also sort of slightly bigger than, than I was, came back and she'd lost a huge amount of weight. I mean, just had gone from being probably normal size, slightly overweight to tiny, absolutely tiny. And, uh, and I just thought, oh, well, if she can do that, mm. well, then so can I, you know, that there must be. And, and I noticed that people quite liked the fact that she was thinner, you know, they, it was more sort of positive comments mm. from her point of view. So I cut out my, I just went on the diet. I said, just went on the diet. I cut out having second helpings and I lost a little bit of weight, um, but nothing to write home or get about. And, and the comments continued. So I just thought, oh, well, all right then. And so I then started cutting out meals and, and I, yeah, and the weights have then started falling off. I, d I didn't actually ever weigh myself, but you could see that the weight was sort of falling off. And my mother then got sort of quite worried, when, obviously, when I went home. Um, and I'd try and avoid food, you know, become an expert liar. Um, mm. And then the comments stopped because, of course, the comments now were sort of more positive. Um, but you sort of slightly feed off that to a certain extent. You know, if somebody goes, God, you know, you're looking good. You think, oh, well, it's obviously working, you know. So it's, it's really difficult, isn't it, to sort of know whether you're making a right comment or a wrong comment or mm. should you not comment on it at all. Anyway, it sort of, it, this went on for quite a long time um, until I think after the birth, I was very lucky to have kids, actually. Um, and it wasn't until my second child was born, I've got three, that... I just thought, you know, I was fine when I was pregnant for some reason. You know, once you've sort of got that baby bump or once you're pregnant, you just, it's not about me. It's about the baby. So you, you had to, my mindset was, well, actually, although it was really hard, I had to think about the baby, not about me. And once you get the bump, actually, it's sort of, it's not your body anymore anyway. It belongs to mm. the baby. So it was sort of slightly different. <laughs> Perhaps I looked at it in a weird way, but that's how I, I coped with it all. When, so during the time where you were at school, 
I mean, I guess now because things like anorexia and bulimia and, and all sorts of different sort of mental health issues are, are, are more prominent and talked about more. Um, so you'd expect that the school would have some sort of pastoral care and pastoral recognition of that and have some sort of mechanisms in place. But going back to, so if you were born in 62, so this would have been happening in the mid seventies, it was a sort of thing that was probably pushed under the carpet and ignored. So did the, did any, apart from your mum recognizing that there was an issue when you went home, did, was it ever flagged up by anybody at the school? Did were you ever asked to go and see the matron? Um, yes. Um, I was asked to go and see the headmistress actually. Uh, right. And, and this was, must have been when I went into the sixth, lower sixth, and one of the girls who had been a few years above me, and I remember meeting her when I first arrived at the school, but I didn't really sort of know her. Anyway, she had sent a, a message to the headmistress and said, you know, if you know anybody in your school who you think has got an eating disorder or something similar, then, you know, please, can you read out my letter? And she basically was, had been in hospital. She was still there, actually, weighing about, I don't know, four, four and a half stone. Um, very, very ill. And she was being fed by a drip mm. because she had um, anorexia. Yet she was still getting her boyfriend to bring her in laxatives every day to get rid of some of the weight that she was putting on. And, and she... Anyway, I mean, it's an awful, awful story. I never found out what happened to her. But the awful thing is that, you know, when the headmistress was reading this out to me, I couldn't understand why she was doing it because that didn't relate to me at all. Mm. I wasn't four and a half, five stone. Um, I wasn't in the hospital. So I couldn't understand why what she was reading out related to me at all. And, but she did say, look, Mimi, you know, I know that you've been missing your meals. You're not eating. Um, and so now, you know, you are going to have to, you know, at lunchtime, something will be left. You can choose what it's going to be. So I decided it was going to be an apple and an orange um, because you can peel the orange and sort of, I don't know, you could just suck it or do something. And the apple, you could just peel it within an inch of your life and be left with virtually nothing. So I was left. So that's what I had for my lunch every day, you know, because they had to try and get something into me. And it was always left in a bowl for me. Um, no, and anything that I did eat would then be thrown up anyway. So, But still nobody sitting there watching or, or providing any sort of counselling or anything, any sort of intervention to, to sort of help with behavioural change? No, because I don't think, I don't think they did in those days. Mm. Um, no, and it, it never occurred to me that somebody should be helping me. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, I just presumed that they were doing something because they were making me, you know, they, they would leave food for me. Um, but yeah, nobody then supervised after the meal. When, of course, you, I mean, it is difficult, isn't it? You know, because it's lunch yeah. with all these other girls. And then I could easily disappear. Who, who's going to tell whether I ate it or not? Mm. Some days I didn't. So, yeah. So you're, you're a mother of three. Uh, I girls, am. girls, boys? Um, I've got uh, two boys and a girl, yeah. Okay. Did your own experiences make you more sensitive to what they might experience at school? Yes. I mean, I was always very aware of, I would always listen to them um, mm -hmm. and, you know, make sure that, you, you know, you actually are hearing, trying to hear what they're saying. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I know my son went through a really bad time. He didn't tell us for a long time, but, you know, he was always, he was 
you know, one of the youngest in his year, and yet he was the tallest. Um, and he actually became quite controlling at one stage about his food. And I've got a picture of him. He's six foot three, and he looked like a beanpole. I mean, mm. literally like a beanpole, which was out of character for the sort of, the sort of type of build that he was. He just looked, like, looked as if he, if you just pushed him, he was just going to fall over. And he was very controlling for quite a few months about his food intake. But again, I had to be quite careful about what I said. Mm, yeah. Because, you know, children are this, you know, they'd say, turn around and say, well, you know, mum, we, we don't all have eating disorders or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, thankfully, he also had some very, very good friends who just turned around to him and just said, Roy, what are you doing? Have you looked at yourself in the mirror? Um, and that was enough for him at that stage to, to turn it all around and it never sort of became an issue. Um, mm. And Emma, Emma was fine. And, and since then, I mean, what, what was it that uh, caused you to, to change your behaviours then? You said it was after your second child. Was there a catalyst or did you just, I mean, after having eaten for the baby, then did you just adopt a, a more healthy eating pattern just as a, an organic no. process? <laughs> no, I think... With each, with my first two children, every time I sort of had the baby, I'd revert back to old habits quite quickly because uh, I thought, well, actually, I've had the baby now. It doesn't really matter. And I know, you know, you're feeding them and things, but that sort of, yeah, that didn't really matter so much. I just needed to get my body back, I think. Um, and, and I remember sort of when I had Rory after he was about 18 months old and I just thought, you know, I just can't continue this cycle for the rest of my life behaving like this because a it's exhausting uh not fair on my husband at all because that I mean i must have been awful to live with um but also equally i didn't want my children to grow up and think that that was normal behavior um because actually that would then impact their lives and then ultimately the life of their kids mm. and i didn't want that at all so yeah I'm, and, and i had just gone back to work at that station i had no pair and I made her make the appointment for the doctor because I knew I couldn't do it. So I thought if she, she makes the appointment, then that way I have to go. So she made the appointment for me and I knew exactly what I was going to say. I sort of practiced what I was going to say. And I went to, to the uh, doctor and I sat in his room and I, I just burst into tears. I, I couldn't couldn't say anything no words came out at all because I felt suddenly you're saying it out aloud to somebody mm. you just feel so ashamed that you've got to this stage where you're having to go and ask for help but I think for me it I mean he was fantastic absolutely fantastic and it's so nice when you've said it it's yeah. still a very very long journey but once you've said it out aloud it some, somehow makes it easier do you, you, you said you were exercising, going to the gym. Um, and I've sometimes wondered when I observe, particularly endurance athletes, whether you can swap one, you know, because endurance running, triathlon, they're, they're quite addictive and they attract a certain type of person who has an addictive personality. Mm. You know, there's, there's a couple of um, tri professional triathletes that have a past as a drug addict. And you can see why. And equally, I would imagine that if you dug deep enough, you'd find that there were some people who had gambling addictions or other sorts of addictions there because you're just swapping one type of thing for another. Yeah. Um, was that the case for you as well, where exercise just replaced sort of um, sort of abstinence from food? 
I never felt it was. I mean, genuinely didn't feel it was because by the time I started running, it was just six years later, I'd had another baby. And so, and yes, you know, I, I would say that I started running because I wanted thinner legs. I did start running because I wanted thinner legs, but I wanted thinner legs because I never liked the shape of my legs. I never liked, there is another reason for that. But, you know, some people want long blonde hair or brown hair. I wanted thinner legs. So <laughs> I never felt that I was swapping one addiction for another um, until actually a few years later, Tim, my, my husband, turned around and said, well, I mean, all you've done is just swapped, you know, your one addiction, your eating uh, disorder for another addiction, mm. which is running. And I went, what a loaded tosh that is. What <laughs> well, a it's, loaded tosh. It, it's interesting because as a coach and I, I, you know, I've stood on poolside and I've watched athletes running and I know that some, some of them have um, a strange relationship with food. But as an endurance athlete, it's an easy excuse, isn't it, to say, well, I need to be lean or I need to be light for sports performance. And so people will leave you alone from pursuing it there um, because it sounds fairly reasonable. Um, you know, and I, I, so I got shouted down in, a, um, in, a, in a, a workshop we were doing before when I I'd sort of said, look, I, you know, I think that triathlon is full of people with addictive personalities obsessive behaviors and eating disorders and they went that's absolutely ridiculous you can't say that i'm like okay then well let's have some examples and yeah by the by the end of it i think perhaps they'd sort of come around to my way of thinking but perhaps i in my yorkshire way i was a little too blunt in putting my thesis across but I think, I think to a certain extent, I think you're absolutely right. I think there are lots of people. I mean, I know I've, I've met several who have either, mm. as you said, had a, um, a, sort of a love affair with, with alcohol or drugs mm. or they've suffered from depression and that, that's another way, you know, running is another way to sort of help with that. So, oh, no, it's, um, you know, I think we're all over the place, aren't we? But, you mm. know, my thing now <laughs> is that, you know, I still have not a weird relationship with food I eat I don't have you know before I wouldn't eat at all or if I wanted to have a bit of chocolate I would buy a bag of Maltesers have one Malteser and then throw the rest away now who hasn't done that I know exactly you see (laughs) so now I'll eat the whole bag of Maltesers you know what I mean it's Ah. I don't have a problem with it now and um and I don't think I couldn't I couldn't go back to how I was Mm. I, I just couldn't do that and I know at one stage when my running sort of stopped and things that I think my son, my, my middle son was, or eldest son was very worried that perhaps my eating disorder might reappear Mm. because, you know, and, uh, do you know, it had never occurred to me. Um, I did think, well, perhaps I'm now going to turn into this baby heffalump. And then I thought, maybe this is stupid. No, you're not going to do that. And so, you know, so I couldn't, I couldn't ever go back to how I was. Um, I, I would hate that. You, you, you mentioned about um, having three children, but how you were lucky to have those children. I mean, there are some fairly well-documented side effects to extreme weight loss and yeah. anorexia. Um, so that, that obviously wasn't a problem. Did it leave you with any long-lasting um, health problems or was it, were they just temporary things that then once you started to improve your eating habits, those corrected themselves? For me, actually, I've been very lucky. Um, I always think because of the one thing I did did eat was cheese sounds really dark doesn't it but you know if I was going to have any sort of food or a little nibble at something it was it was cheese later on um no I mean I've had obviously I've had my bone density checked um and that was fine thank thank goodness um so yeah no quite lucky 
uh, my periods returned to normal um, and hence I was, you know, obviously lucky. Well, actually, funny enough, when, when I got pregnant with Emma, I hadn't had a period for two years. Wow. So there we go. And then in between Emma and Rory, I had, it was about half a day. Wow. So, yeah, exactly. So I was very lucky. Now, thankfully, I'm through the menopause. So, hallelujah, you know. Um, but yeah, I, 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 haven't, I haven't, as far as I'm aware, had any lasting effects from my eating disorder. So I've been very lucky. Do you, or have you done any, I know you do a lot of public speaking. Have you spoken on this subject? Are you involved with any charities or fundraising that help to bring awareness or to help people who are sort of going through similar situations? Um, I do bring it up in my talks. Um, if, depending on who I'm talking to, um, I do. Um, and because I think it's important that, you know, even if you just chat briefly about the subject, mm. it's quite, and especially with girls at girls' schools and things, it's quite nice that they think, well, you know, if somebody's going through something similar, they can either come and chat to me or they can then start a conversation with somebody who they trust. Um, so, yeah, I do, tr- I, do, I do do that. I did, when I did my joggle, so John Groats the Land's End World Record, I did raise money for BEAT, so, which is the eating disorder uh, mm. charity, um, because I wanted to show that, you know, you can get over these awful illnesses and then, you know, still, still be, take part in sport, you know, because there was a sort of time where, you know, you, you were told that you couldn't exercise, you couldn't do this and you couldn't do that. And I agree, you know, if you're, you're having to put on weight and things, everything has to be in moderation. You have to keep an eye on it and things. And I I got a bit of stick actually Mm. from various people who, and quite rightly, you know, everybody is, uh, is entitled to their opinion. And it's, and it upset me that I was giving out the wrong message sometimes because I didn't want that to happen. Mm. Um, I wanted to, to make it into a sort of a positive. And I think it was very difficult for especially mums who are watching their daughters and dads, parents watching their, their, their daughter or their son going through it. And then there was me running from Land's End to John O'Groats and I was also losing weight. I always lose weight when I do big runs. That's just how <laughs> my body is, you know, and because of the distance. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a lot of positive, it, you know, and I think things have changed slightly now. But at the time, I did get a bit of flack about it, and, which I completely understand, so that's fine. I think sometimes you can't win with those things. You try to do the right thing, but it ends up, you know, falling on deaf ears with some people just because they're not perhaps ready to hear it. Um, but also I think difficult if you're watching a child who's mm. going through something like that and they are very, very ill and they're in hospital and they've been in and out of hospital, you know, that must be, so I can understand it. Um, you know, I might've felt the same. I don't know, but it, I was trying to do, trying to make it into, be positive about it to show mm. that actually, you know, actually I've recovered from this. I haven't had any bad effect of, from it. So this is what I can do. So, you know, there is a future. Mm. Well, let's, let's go back. Thank, and thank you for being so, um, so open and made me about that, because I'm sure that the, if I always think that when I do these podcasts, if some, if there's one person that's listening for whom it's a positive, um, you know, they hear some positive comments and that's a victory, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Let's go back to MDS in 2001. Then what was it that, what was it that got you to the start line? I mean, I've, I've shared why I entered because I was raising money for the hospice when my mum had passed away. So what, what was it that caused you to enter and do it as a threesome? 
Uh, it's entirely Max's fault. Absolutely. So Max, Louise, and myself, we would we trained together. So they were the ones that got me into running in the first place. You know, so there was me quite happily running on my treadmill, completely oblivious to the fact that the whole world, you know, well, not the whole world, because you didn't so much in those days, but people ran outside. I didn't know this at all, you see. I just <laughs> presumed everybody ran on a treadmill. And they said to me, right, Mimi, come on, we're doing this run. Uh, we're going to do 10 miles outside. Come and join us. Well, you know, I'd only done three miles on a treadmill. So, I mean, this was seven miles further than I'd done before. And it was outside. But I thought, oh, do you know what? Because they said, it's going to be so relaxed, Mimi. You know, we're not talking about a pace here or anything. We're just talking about going out and having a fun run. So it was five miles out, five miles back again, along something called the Cuckoo Trail. So a very flat old railway line. And... Um, and we went off and I just absolutely loved it. Really loved it. You know that feeling when mm. you're sort of just, you're in the zone you're, and you just feel, you, and, and I felt as if my feet had been given a pair of wings and I could fly. It was just the most wonderful feeling. It, it was just, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And so for me, that was the beginning of um, my journey and then Max bless her you see it's all it's entirely her fault came into the gym one day she knows how my brain works you see and she came into the gym and she said right Mimi I found our next race and she handed me this magazine and it had pictures of people running through the desert and they had blisters and sand dunes and I just remember looking at this thinking oh my god that is going to be such an adventure you know that would be fantastic <laughs> Um, but she said, I can't, my computer's broken because the computers in those days were really quite dodgy computers. You know, I think we had a dial up, you know, mm. to get, to get onto it. And, um, and she said, mine's not working, Mimi. So could you do me a favor and just sort of, you know, look at the website, get all the information because it was all done via post in those days. Mm. Um, and then, so that's what I did. And that's how we ended up on the start line of the, of the MDS. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I spent a bit of time with Louise actually, actually after that. She asked me to coach her for a while, and we did an adventure race together. And I, I'd, Louise had a fondness for red wine, I can remember, because we went to yes. an adventure race, and, and we got a tent. And um, uh, I can't remember if I was – I think there might have been four of us. So, yeah, there was four of us, and we, we, were, we were in this group of people doing one of these two-day adventure races it was a Saturday, it was a friday night and we we all we all took three bottles of wine each so we had 12 between the four of us and louise and i sat up till about 3 a.m drinking people in the campsite were going look we've got a race to do in the morning can you lot shut up and go to sleep and i just remember louise laughing her head off and let's have another in that south african accent let's have another oh, glass. yes yeah no she hasn't changed she hasn't changed, so you're all, yeah, she's exactly the same. Oh, so, um, so after MDS then, and of course, I, one, one thing I also remember is that uh, after MDS, everybody was very excited and we were all swapping emails and then you'd, you'd find out that you might have got some flyers for another event. I remember one in, in, um, in 
the Middle East, Jordan, maybe Jordan, where you where yes. you ran through the where you ran through that valley of the where all the stone had been carved out, and you were running through, and you were going to the um, was it the temple or something that was carved out of the sand? It went um, to Petra, wasn't it? Petra, yes, that's right. Petra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Louise so, did that. <clears throat> so people were talking about that. So of course, when you do one event, you think, oh, I've never heard of an event like this, and all of a sudden you meet all these people that are talking about these other events elsewhere, and so of course then your list of um, things to do starts growing doesn't it so uh, what after MDS then what was next for you well actually funny enough I hadn't got anything planned when I went after the MDS so I think everybody thought well that's going to be it Mimi you're not going to do anymore um, I think because I had the, the kids at that stage I couldn't um, go off and do lots of big adventures so I did uh, a few races um, and then I did the next year I think I did the trail walker um, thousand kilometers, hundred kilometers rather, along over the North Downs, uh, South Downs. Mm. Um, so, we, and we won. We did it as a team again uh, with Max, not Louise, and we did fastest mixed times. We won that one, um, and then I ended up doing a few. Um, I can't remember what I did. Oh, I tell you what, I did two thousand and four. Um, I. <laughs> I needed a qualifying race for Badwater uh, because, you know, as you were talking about earlier, I heard about Badwater and I wanted to do it. Uh, Badwater is a 135-mile nonstop race in, um, in America from starting in Death Valley and finishing in the portals of Mount Whitney. And you go over three mountain ranges. It's a hard, hard race. And it is one of, it is one of the hottest races in the world. And um, I thought, I need to go and do this race. So... I did the Grand Union Canal. Yeah, exactly. It, so I, I did the Grand Union Canal race, uh, you know, from Birmingham to London, 145 mm. miles, 45 mile hour cutoff. I think it was longer actually in those days. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, I did that, and I remember somebody saying to me, "Mimi, you know, nobody ever, for their first time, does it in under 40 hours. They just, they just don't do it." I thought, well. That's red drag to a bull, isn't it? She said, anyway, 39, 39, way to go, Mimi. <laughs> I thought, well, these times have proved them wrong. So that was good. And that was my qualifier for bad water. So, yeah, so mm. I went straight into the, you know, so straight from half marathon to, um, to the MDS and then from 100K up to 145 miles. Bad water. I've been to bad water. I wouldn't even run from the car to the cafe. I know, it's hot, isn't it? It's, it's hot. hot. <laughs> and you start off below sea level, don't you? It's just like being, it is, I mean, when people say it was like being in a furnace, it was like being in a furnace. I've never been to anywhere on earth as hot, um, you know, or, or so oppressive. And it, it, that everything shimmers. I, I've seen... Uh, I've seen videos of the guys wearing those white, almost like biotech suits, yeah. shuffling along and trying to run on the white line because if you run on the black and tarmac, your shoes melt. Was it, was oh, yeah. It, is, that how it, is, that, is that how it was for you? Uh, oh, yes. I mean, I don't remember always having to run on the white line just because I wasn't able to focus on it all the time. But, uh, oh, I mean, it is so hot, so hot. So everybody has to have their own support crew. Um, so you know, your support crew literally meets you every mile, two miles, which I know sounds completely overdoing it. But in that extreme heat, mm. you need somebody to, you know, you don't want to have a big pack, backpack that you're carrying with, with food and stuff in. So they literally need to give you food. But more importantly, actually, they're replenishing your water on a regular basis and giving you ice cubes. Mm. You go through 
so many ice cubes. Um, but yeah, the heat is so, so oppressive. I mean, literally, you can feel it sort of just pulling all the fluid out of your body from your eyes, your nose, your ears, everything. It's, uh, it's, it's hard. I seem to remember that on the MDS, they told us that the hottest temperature we experienced like was 59 degrees centigrade, but it's... Yeah, I think hot. we had a particularly hot day. That was the longest day, I think, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, they told us the next day, hey, it was yeah. a record. And I think we had one when, when I did it in 2015 as well. So what, what sort of temperatures are you experiencing in Death Valley then? Oh, I can't remember. It was, uh, I don't think, did we hit 50s? I don't think we quite hit the 50s the year that I did it first. We might have done actually the first time, but you know, you're... I mean, you're looking at, it can go up to the 50s, it can go up above that, but it's made worse, the temperature, because you've got the heat um, from the road. Mm. And that, that's the bit that, uh, you know, you just, you can just feel it, just hits you. Um, and then, then you have a bit of a breeze and you think, oh, that's going to be nice. No, the breeze is hot as well. It's like a hairdryer. Yes. You know, like, everything yeah, is like, hot. Like when you open the onion, the, the, you know, you're cooking the Sunday lunch and you open the oven. And you get yeah. That. That's, uh, that's exactly what it's like so but the temperatures are incredibly hot and you know not just for the obviously for the runner but you know for the crew as well they've got to mm. stay quite vigilant about looking after themselves um as well as, as looking after me so they do a great job was that your most hellish challenge then oh, I don't know. it was at the time they always <laughs> say don't they that the yeah. race you're doing at the time is that is the worst possible race in the world um hellish challenge i don't know what my mo- I, I think one of the most di- well one of the most challenging ones that i ever did was my arctic race oh okay so it was the 6633 because that was that was the other extreme so you get you're, you're running in minus 40 so that's you know the other end of the spectrum um challenging oh i don't know you see there are lots of running in the jungle i mean that that was yeah peruvian jungle that was pretty challenging i've mm. never seen so many bugs in my entire life and mud mud you feel like a hippo by the end of that I mean, really it was, you, oh yeah i mean it, you are just the mud is unbelievable in sections of it and you can't run and the altitude of course you're running at altitude the whole time mm. um but but it was very beautiful so um well, there's a couple of things out of that then. The first, I suppose, we should talk about is how do you prepare? Um, I mean, I guess you've got the basics of endurance. You can never do as many You can never do as many miles in training as you think you need to to be able to run a 150-mile right. race. So uh, I guess there's a lot of mindset stuff in there. And you, you've, because you train all the time, it's just consistency. You, you know that you've got the basic level of fitness. Um, but how do you train for those specifics of climate, for instance? How do you train for the minus 40 or the plus 50? Uh, well, the minus 40, um, I actually ended up going to uh, France. Uh, in fact, it was Italy with a friend of mine. Uh, she, had, she had a house out there. And so she, we went out and did some cold training. With in the Alps house, then, in the mountains? In the Alps, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm being, I'm, I'm having one of those moments. Um, yeah, so we went out to the Alps and actually, but it was fantastic. And we would literally go out with a backpack um, and we'd be out for eight hours, nine hours or something. Um, it wasn't particularly cold. You know, we, we were wanting minus 15 or minus 20 when it was. And I think it, they were having an, a warm year. So it was only minus 
seven or something ridiculous. <laughs> um, but it was just good practice. I think sort of, you know, having the backpack, we used snowshoes. Um, I didn't use them in the race, but it was just being out mm. in, in the cold. So that, I did that for that. And then for the other environments, so sort of heat, um, I would sit in a sauna for hours, um, build it up. So I'd start in, in there for sort of 20 minutes. Um, I never did any exercise. I might do a bit of stomach work or press-ups or anything like that. But actually, for me, it was all about getting used to the heat mm. um, and getting used to sort of drinking slightly more um, so that my stomach can just cope with, with the sort of extra fluid. So that, and I would do that for about a month before I actually mm. um, went away. I was quite lucky when I went to race in Hawaii that uh, I was able to use the heat chamber at the university and so I had four or five sessions in there and we we, we dialed in the exact humidity and the first session I did I, I went on that he said you'd be better off on the bike first because you, 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 your heat won't go up as quickly and I thought well I, I can try and mimic what the first part of the course is so the first half hour is a bit of a hill so put in a big gear downhill riding at this power and he got one of these internal thermometers. And after half, after half an hour, he said, right, you've reached the limit of the temperature we wanted you to go to today. So either we're going to have to stop the session or you can just go easy and see what happens. So I rode easy. It was an hour and a half session. I rode easy, like at 100 watts yeah. for the next <laughs> hour. And my temperature didn't carry on. It stopped. It plateaued. But it didn't come down either. And that was a real shock to me that, you know, um, that your temperature didn't drop when you went easy. And he said, yeah, yeah. In, if this happens on race day, Sam, and the only way to get your temperature down is to stop exercise and, and just just immerse yourself in cold water. Um, but he said you will get better. But it, it, was, it was a real insight into thermal load, you know, and how yeah. your perceived effort or your heart rate is one thing or the power you're putting out on the bike is one thing. But when your core temperature's going up, you've really got to manage that because if you don't, it's curtains, isn't it? It's game over, really. Oh, no, absolutely. And in America, you know, uh, when doing uh, bad water, you know, you actually had, um, I, I never had to use it. I was quite lucky, but everybody sort of had these big ice boxes, uh, well, basically looked like a coffin that you could actually immerse yourself into if you needed to. So I, I would actually have lots of ice around my neck or on my head and that, that and on my wrist as well. So that really helped just keep my temperature down and it's amazing actually even in that heat when the sun goes down I mean it's still incredibly hot but you lose that burning sensation mm -hmm. that obviously mm -hmm. the sun gives you so there was a bit of a respite at, at, at night and it was st still ridiculously hot but uh, it was better um, yeah so it's lots of different techniques that you can do I listened to a podcast the other day where they were interviewing a navy seal and the the interviewer said so you know, were you fit when you went? And he said, actually, I wasn't that fit. I was fit enough. I could do all the stuff. But he said, it's not always the fittest guys. Some, some of the super fit guys get through, but often those guys get binned out because it's the mental aspect. It's, the, it's just the relentless application, you know, sleep deprivation, um, just immersing them in cold water for hours, just sort of having to, you know, keeping pushing you down to the lowest level you think you can achieve and then, uh, and then doing it again a bit lower and a bit lower and and um and so it it made me wonder whether people who excel at ultra races and you and you clearly have done for many years 
um, how much of that is nature? So how much of that mindset is something you had when you, you know, you knew you had when you're little and how much of it is nurture that you learn to, you learn to deal with that sort of adversity? I think a little bit of it is, um, for me anyways, of nature. I think having had the eating disorder and overcoming that, I think that's taught me an awful lot to show me that actually I can mm. do something. Um, and then also, I mean, I had quite an abusive nanny. So, and I sort of, I know you never really get over that, but I think those two things actually sort of made me quite a strong person. But I think actually it's my, every time I do a race, um, you become stronger. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it is, is to do with, um, you know, your mentality. Actually, I think a certain about, you know, a bit of it is nature, nurture, whatever you like to call it. But I think the rest of it for me, I think has grown in all the races that I have, I've done. You know, if you have a failure or something doesn't go to plan, actually turn it into a positive. What can I do to make it better? How mm. can I be stronger? What do I have to put in place next time to make me achieve what I want to achieve? And so it's, it's a learning process the whole time. So you do become stronger mm. and better as you go on. That, for me, I definitely think that I have. I mean, I think we all have it within us, don't we? Um, and there, oh, there, yes. yeah. we've all, we probably all had situations where we've got no choice but to just keep going because the alternative is far worse. You know, whether that's battling through, um, through tough times at work or in a relationship or whether you've overcome um, something like cancer or recovery from a traumatic injury. Um, we, we are all able to do that when we've got no yeah. choice. I suppose the difference between that and a, an event that we – um, like the sort of events that we do or our listeners might do is that we've chosen to do those events and so therefore we're choosing the pain and we can equally choose not I don't want it anymore today so I'm just bailing out yeah but then do you know it's very easy isn't it to to bail out of an event mm. you know I, I'm sort of I'm not sure actually I think it's quite hard to bail out well, because okay so, no okay I agree with that so okay that that came out wrong but it's sort of for me if I'm I don't know whether you go through the scenario sometimes in a race. It's usually around the middle of a race. And you just think, oh, do you know, if I, if I tripped up now yeah. or fell down a rabbit hole or do something, then, do you know, fab, race game over. Or if, you know, I could just, oh, my goodness, look at me, I've twisted my ankle or do something. But you know, you know you're never going to do mm. that because you know that if that ever happened, you'd feel so disappointed, wouldn't you? But you still go through that scenario. Or if you're so, my rule of thumb in in a sort of a race situation would always be right. If I'm having a really bad time here, um, I'm going to get myself to the next checkpoint, and you know that by the time you get to that next checkpoint, everybody's there. They look after you. You know, they mm. just you're doing really well. I mean, it's like being given a massive, great big hug, isn't it? And then suddenly you find that you're sort of about three miles out of the checkpoint. You're thinking, what happened there? I was going to stop there. You know, so you have to go on to the next checkpoint. You have, you know, what I mean, you can't because you can't go back. I, I, I have almost identical story of a, of a hundred mile mountain bike race we were doing in Keel the Forest, and uh, I felt I said to my friend Andy that we were doing it in pairs. I said we're going to struggle here to get to the next checkpoint, and he said, "Well, we've got to keep going because we have to get there anyway." And I said, "All right, well, look." You know, if we get to the next checkpoint and we're out of time, that's it. We won't argue with it. I'm, I'm done. 
it was we just it just got really really hot at one point i just felt like all the energy drained out of me so we agreed that you know if if we didn't make it to the checkpoint on time we'd ride together we'd stay together and then if it, if that was it that was it we got to the top of this climb and it was a 5k descent down this wide forest track and we came into the checkpoint and i'm like and i didn't have a watch on so i didn't know and i said to the guy we're, we're out of time aren't we, we went no no you've got a good 15 minutes i'm like man <laughs> so Andy said, well, we'll have to carry on then. And so just like you've described there, the next thing was we, we're, um, we filled our water bottles up and without even thinking about it, we're at the trail. But then I started getting sick after that um, and throwing up. And uh, at, at that point, then I'm thinking, well, I could just roll back to the checkpoint and, you know, they, they probably give me a lift back. Oh, no, maybe I can, if I can just get to the top of this hill, then I can freewheel down the other side. And I, I was the last finisher. I ended yeah. up I ended up catching one guy in the dark because he didn't have any lights and so I nearly ran into him and so I said well, will you follow me um so you can see in the light and so we ended up going together and and all the other finishers waited for us we actually got a prize for being the lantern <laughs> roost my friend Andy was an hour ahead but he got nothing <laughs> um but yeah here we are laughing about it now and and talking about it like it was some sort of fond experience but it wasn't at the time Oh, no, no, no. At the time, it's, it's absolutely horrendous, you know, and if you, when you do have a DNF or whatever it is, you just, I mean, it does feel like not quite the end of the world. But, you know, if you put a lot of effort into that training and then things don't go right. But I just think, you know, after you've, you know, had time to sort of think about it a bit more, you can, you can turn it into a positive. Uh, it's not always easy, but, you know, you can always learn. It's a learning curve rather than a, a failure. Well, and what you said there about well, let's 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 not think about getting to the finish. Let's break it down into small chunks. Yeah. What's the next bit? Can I get to the top of this hill? I remember Bradley Wiggins talking about you know um, somebody said, "How do you hang on when you're in amongst a bunch of climbers on one of the big mountain stages?" He said, "You just right make a deal with yourself. Let's let me ride for the next two minutes and see if I'm still in the group. Right, just keep going the next two minutes, the next two minutes before you realise it, you're at the top, and then you get a chance to regroup and you keep doing it again." You, it's it's almost deadly if you start thinking about the finish, isn't it? Oh yeah, you can't do that. Absolutely can't do that. You know, you you know in your head that you've got to, let's say, run fifty miles or run a hundred miles. You know that, but you you break it up into the various checkpoints. Get to a checkpoint, chuck it away. Yes, done that. So you break it up into lots of ten k, fifteen k runs. Mm. Oh, easy, isn't it? Really. <laughs> just add them all together easy for you to say no no no, but you know what I mean it's sort of you know it's much it's small goals isn't it so your main goal is to finish the race but actually in between you've got your little goals i.e getting to the checkpoints throw them away move on and then you're getting closer every time to your main goal well and of course in every no matter who you are and this will happen to the world's best as it will to somebody doing this for the first time and maybe it's a 5k is you'll have moments where you're coasting along and it feels like it's easy and there's other times when it's just insanely horrible and and just deathly and you wonder why you're doing it but you, you have to cling on to the fact that in any bad moment you, you will feel good at some point but also when things are going well you've you've also got to be prepared that there will be a, a dip and you'll feel rubbish but and, and again you get you get used to that experience don't you so it's like welcoming back an old friend yeah, you do, and, I th- and you don't know how long it's going to last either, do no, you? You know, no. it could last for five minutes, could last for ten minutes. But so I've always had this sort of visualization of, um, of, of uh, if I'm having a really bad time. I mean, I do do a lot of talking to myself actually if I'm having a bad time in a race. 
and uh, give myself a talking to. But I always have this image in my mind of my family, my husband and my kids at the finish line, holding my medal and I'm running towards them. So I've looked at pictures of the race mm. from year, previous years and I've seen what the finish line looks like. So I've sort of put them there and I am running towards them and, you know, arms are open wide. So that real powerful sort of uh, stance and they're never at the finish line. It doesn't matter. But for <laughs> me, that's just a really strong image when I'm having a bad patch. I think, okay, they're going to be there. I need to just keep mm -hmm. on moving forward. And I know that that time will pass. Mm. Well, talking about setbacks in one of you, probably the, biggest challenge that you set for yourself you you you've i mean i'm going to reel off a couple of a few of the things that you've done here mimi um you did that 663 you were the overall winner um, yes yeah so that's one of those where you beat the guys as well just proving that um really that that theory that women tend to be better in the longer endurance races you did the joggle so that's john O'Groves to land end that's north to south 12 days 15 hours we cycled it a few years ago in eight days that was tough enough um so 12 yeah, no, yes now I, I, I mean that's obviously since been broken but it's uh, i held it for uh, over 11 years mm. um so double comrades first female and fourth person to ever achieve it well, it was first female in that I was the first female to have ever achieved the double. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah and then that's entirely my husband's fault because he wouldn't let me just go to South Africa and do a 90K race. He has no idea what comrades is. So. <laughs> I love the way that all these race entries are somebody else's fault as well. Of course, no, 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 no part of Mimi was involved in this, in this adventure. <laughs> absolutely none. You were Grand Union Canal. You dropped you dropped your initial uh, time of thirty nine hours down by eleven hours to twenty eight. New record. Yeah. Um, oh, Namibian Desert Challenge. That'd be a bit like the MDS, wouldn't it? Yeah, so sh shorter. So yes, yeah, a similar thing. They've changed the format again, but yes, yeah, so a similar thing, but over five days. Right. This this one stands out for me. It's almost like a flashing beacon. Double bad water. <laughs> double bad water i mean like if you if you can't go through hell do double hell to make it you know to make it worthwhile well i wanted to go back and do, and do the race again i mean it is it is such a fantastic race actually it's got such a great atmosphere and um but i thought okay i want to go and do the double this time they're quite a, i say quite a few there are people every year who, who do the double crossing and so i wanted you know again there's there's always a record or a time that you mm. can beat. So I looked at, uh, there's a stat of all the sort of information of, of uh, sheet of all the information of people who've done everything from the, the, the race itself to double crossings. And um, anyway, so I found the female who had done it and she'd done it in X, Y, and Z time. So I thought, okay, that's the time to go and beat. So to do the double, you do the race and I wanted to do the race as well as I could. So I did that in 34 hours something, I think. Um, and I was fourth female for that. So while they were having the party, um, a pizza party, I was climbing to the top of Mount Whitney, which is uh, four and a half thousand meters. And then I had to come all the way down and then run all the way back to start again. Wow. <laughs> I'm not sold on that one. <laughs> oh no, Mount Whitney's fast. Oh, yes. Mount, Mount yeah. Whitney, the Mount Whitney bit, yeah. No, I'm not sold on the double. Oh no, <laughs> and, yeah, it was quite hard. 
Anyway, I, I, I don't think we've got time to reel off all of your accomplishments, but I will put a link to that page on the show notes so people can to see them. But the, um, let's fast forward 2017, and you have um, planned an attempt to run across America, world record attempt, but, and this is where we talk a bit more about building resilience and coming back from, you know, coming back from a real setback. Um, you got some bad news about your knee, um, I mean, I guess I guess it wasn't a sudden thing. I guess it had been building. Um, did it? Is it some? So tell us what happened with the knee. Had it been something that had been going on for a couple of years, or did it just develop during the event? Well, I had uh, I had to postpone the event by a year because I had um, a torn meniscus, quite a bad tear in my <coughs> meniscus. So I had that sorted, and the surgeon knew that I was going to go and do the event and you know the race and everything and at no point did anybody say to me you can't do that maybe you know so and I rehabbed I was really good absolutely fastidious with my my rehab let me just ask did you actually tell them you were going to run 2,800 miles I did I did I did tell the surgeon yeah no I did so they all knew about it um and actually you know even if he'd said well you can't do that (laughs) you know you, you just pay no attention do you um, but he didn't. He didn't actually say that. He did wish me good luck when I when I left. Um, but I was quite lucky. I had the support of Kent University because they had an Alter G treadmill. So mm. you know, my rehab was fantastic. So when I ran across America, as far as I was concerned, actually there was going to be no issues mm. um, because I'd rehab my knee and everything was hunky dory. And then, you know, I then gradually I started getting sort of niggles in my leg. Well, it, to me, it wasn't my knee because it happened in my hamstring. And, of course, then it was my calf and then it was something else. And, and of course, everything goes behind, under, over your knee. And it turned out in the end on day 40, you know, I'd covered a big, big distance at this stage. I was on track to get the record. Um, and we, I, I could barely walk. I did 16 mm. very, very slow miles, which were incredibly painful. And so the build-up had been there. And it's a pain I can't even begin to describe. Um, I've tried. It was just beyond anything that I've ever had before. And so we had an MRI scan. And I had bone edema because of, obviously, the, the pressure I've put on my, my leg. And I had no cartilage on the outside of my knee. So my, I had bone on bone, which is mm. mainly what was causing the pain. Um, yeah. So that was it. I had to make that decision to stop. It, it was a hard, mm. hard decision. Yeah, it took me a long time to make it to. <laughs> Silly, isn't it? You know, but it did. I'd given three years of my life to this. And then suddenly yeah. it was over. But then, you know, you're a relatively young woman. And, uh, you know, would you have you clearly didn't want to live with the idea of having a, a knee replacement just to do the run, you know, cause that, no, that... but I did think about it. Really? Okay. <laughs> I did. I mean, you know, in that moment, in that moment where you're told the news mm. and you're given all the bad and wasn't actually given the worst scenarios. My husband was given that one, but you know, I was left alone to sort of think. And I think I'd gone in there wanting an injection, a magic cure, a pill or something. And he did say to me, Mimi, you can have an injection um, in your knee, but they don't always work. And it might only work for the next 100 miles. And then you're back to square one. And then he said, but actually, look at the damage you're going to be causing to your knee. So he then left me to it. And even with all of that, I tell you, I did want to continue, but um, I knew it wasn't the right thing to do. 
I knew I don't I, I I'm really against other people who do things and cause themselves more damage mm. when it's not necessary. You know, certain injuries you can keep on running through, you know, for a bit, you can do that. But this wasn't, ah. in my eyes anyway, one of those injuries. So, um, yeah, so I, I made the decision uh, to stop, which was sensible because mm. um, I could barely walk. So, you know, and the pain was so intense. I had to say I had morphine. That didn't even work. So there you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. When you get to that point, you know something's wrong, don't you? Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that didn't, it, I mean, it, it stopped you from running, uh, but it didn't stop you, did it? You just uh, changed to something else. Um, well, you sort of, I mean, that, it, it sounds really flippant, doesn't it? But it's sort of, um, I mean, I went into a, I went to a quite dark place. Mm. And I spoke to two surgeons completely independently, both dealt with people who did, you know, sports, dealt with sports people. But they both told me exactly the same thing. And, and I thought, well, actually, you know, either I can continue going down or, which then affects, you know, affects my family, affects my husband, me, um, or I can do something about it. So I spoke to a friend of mine who suggested um, that I did ride across Britain, which is a cycle ride from Land's End to John O'Groats in 2018, because it was, uh, it was it'd be the 10th anniversary of my world record. I didn't even have a, a road bike at the time. I had a, a hybrid bike, and that was it. Uh, so I signed up for that. I, I didn't know. I mean, it was a, over 100 miles a day for nine days, and it's ridiculously long anyway. <laughs> but I had to have a goal. I, you know, I spent my life having something in the diary, something mm. to look forward to. And then suddenly, you know, I come back from America, and because that's such a big event, I haven't planned anything beyond that because I, 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 my, I physically couldn't or mentally couldn't think of anything else because I had to concentrate on America. Mm. Um, so suddenly there was nothing. Um, yeah, so I started beginning to cycle in the sort of, I suppose, the late December. And you're talking very little miles here. You know, yeah, but, but, but a lifetime of endurance stuff and that mindset, which, which goes a long way. Um, com- coming back to the mindset thing, um, all of the lessons that we talked about a few moments ago that you learned from racing, are that, is that what helps you get through those black moments after the, you know, the, sort of realisation that your knee wasn't going to allow you to carry on running? Yeah, do you know, I think, I think it was. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the running has, it does make you into a stronger person. It does make you, you know, if, 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 if you can't do something or you fail at something, then you find a way of doing it. Mm. And I just had to, um, I sort of, I, I was writing a blog <laughs> and it, I was writing a blog and I googled black holes because I felt as if I, w- I was in a black hole and Stephen Hawking had said um, and I'm not going to get this quote right at all but basically he was saying that if you ever find yourself in a black hole there is always a way out and as I read that I thought you know Minnie he's absolutely right you know if I can get myself in I can definitely get myself back out again and that's when I think I spoke to my friend Mark about the cycling and then I also decided, I thought, right, if I go away on holiday or I go somewhere, uh, you know, I want to be able to do some form of exercise that actually makes me feel as if I'm doing something. And if I can't, you know, take a bike um, and I can't, I can't 
go running anymore because at that stage I didn't know whether I could run or not. Um, then I'm going to learn to swim. And of course, I had a fear of oh, swimming. I could get in a pool and do that. But I, I hated putting my face in water. I didn't like going out of my depth or anything like that. So I put it out on social media that I was going to mm. learn how to do the front crawl, stupidest thing I've ever done. <laughs> just, anyway, but I did it. And I did my first triathlon. That terrified me. But I did it. How old were you when you learned to swim? Well, two, 2018, I had my literally oh, okay. January. I mean, I could swim, but I couldn't do the front crawl. Um, reminds, reminds me of my mum's story. When she, my mum had a fear of water. Um, I think probably she was pushed into swimming pool or held underwater when she was, you know, as part of a little game when she was young and, and she'd had a, a fear of it since. And I mean, she wouldn't even have, she wouldn't even take a shower. She didn't like getting her hair wet. Oh, really? Okay. Um, yeah, so, yeah. you know, it, the, she would have to lie in the bath and tilt her head back. She couldn't have the feeling of water uh, enveloping her. So um, it, it, it was a, a real restriction for her. And when she was 50, she decided that she was going to learn to swim. And, I, you know, I was doing triathlons by then. Yeah. And I remember her excitedly telling me that she'd signed up for these swimming lessons and she'd been for them and she'd recount each lesson. And then she said, uh, like, like a little child coming home from school saying, mommy, I've swum across the pool today. She, she said to me, I, I've done one width today. And then she got a 25 meter badge. So she got, there was all the five-year-old kids getting the 25 meter badge and my 50 year old mum. I, I couldn't have been more proud of her. And yeah. then, and then she swam 50 meters and, you know, she was so excited about that. that and, and it, it must've been a huge fear for her to overcome. I don't think I really ever comprehended just what it must have taken for her to swallow that fear and, and just overcome oh, it. I guess, I guess it was the same for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, I could get into the water. I couldn't do anything fast-flowing or where I felt uh, out of my depth. Or, then forget it. I just, I just would go into this complete sort of panic. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I remember the first lesson I had, Kevin said to me, right, come on, Mimi, show me what you can do, i.e. go and do a lesson. I went, no. No, 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 no. And I briefly had explained, or I then explained my story. Um, so we literally started by blowing bubbles in the water. And I remember the first time I put my face in the water, <gasps> I came up like that and everything I'd sort of, you know, been held under for hours. But it's that initial sort of, <gasps> you know, and then doing, um, I don't know, sink downs. If you see me doing a sink down, I would tell you that could be a comedy sketch. You know, Kevin, straight down. I mean, this was several lessons afterwards. Me, I am blowing and I'm blowing and I'm blowing and my, my body turns upside down. My bottom goes into the air. I'm still not sinking down to the bottom of the swimming pool. And I come up and go, <laughs> you said, Mimi, you're not blowing enough. I am huffing here. <laughs> you know? sink, sink downs are one of the, um, sounds like the breathing and the sink downs are something that Swim Smooth do. And uh, we used to try that at, at, um, in our swim lessons just uh, at the tri club just yeah. to get people used to to properly breathing and the same comedy of errors as people were trying to do that doing somersaults going on the side <laughs> you know and coming up redder and redder <laughs> i've been breathing out and i'm not going anywhere um and then yeah. that anno then that annoying person that just goes look you just do like this they cross the legs it's almost like some sort of floating yoga pose and then they just sit there yeah. for, for a minute but you feel as if you just want to say, I, that's what I was doing. Obviously not. Anyway, so there we go. <laughs> I think I've always sort of shallow breathed, actually. I mean, I'm an asthmatic, so I think perhaps I don't 
I don't know. I don't go deep enough or something. Anyway, who knows? Who knows? I can um, do it now, just not very well. So some people would say that's overcoming the impossible. You've written, you wrote a book. That was your first book, wasn't it, called Beyond Impossible? Beyond so what, Impossible. What, what was the basis for all of that then? Uh, that book was basically about my juggle world record. So every chapter was about um, a few days of, of the event. But interspersed in the middle of that would be something about my, my childhood, my eating disorder, um, a few races, some of the other things, my father dying. Um, so it, it's, it sort of covers quite a lot, my fear of swimming. Uh, so it, it covers quite a lot, but it's, it's basically about my Lanza and my John O'Groats to world, world record. Your father was the gentleman who gave you the love of camping, wasn't he? I remember. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about that earlier. Yes, I found, you know, it made me laugh, actually. When we were in the MDS, we were talking earlier before the interview about um, my father had, had always said, you know, you love camping, you love camping, you love camping. As we used to go camping as children in Norway every year. And I found a bit of paper that I'd written um, and, it, and in different colored pens. And I think I'd done it when I was nine and my father had kept it beside his bed. And I said, I hate camping. I hate camping. I hate camping. And it made me laugh because all those years later, you know, my father said, but you're going off to do this race in the desert and you're camping. I said, I know, Dad, but that's different, isn't it? You know, because I'm, I'm racing. Um, yeah, so it's no funny. Just to share that story that we were laughing about, um, we talked about that guy, the Kiwi guy, whose name we've both terribly badly forgotten, but Psycho um, was a man of few words, but when he did say something, it was just <laughs> unbelievably dry and normally funny. And uh, he was lying there in his sleeping bag. Often he'd have the, the, the hole tied up, wouldn't he? So there was just a tiny little bit of hole with his nose poking out. And he was sort of, we thought he was fast asleep. And you were, you were laughing and recounting this story about, yes, and daddy used to take us camping. And we used to have to say, I like camping. I like camping. I like camping. And, and then Psycho just coughed up, did your dad have a bloody stutter? <laughs> of which we all fell about laughing. And so did the, the sort of three or four tents yeah. either side of us, because uh, everybody had been interested in the story you were telling. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Funny moments. Oh, I know. It was so funny. But yeah, who would have thought all those years later, I'd actually quite like camping. Ah, uh, yes. Well, there's something about being stuffed into a into an open tent like a like a set of sausages in a in a tray, isn't there? And just having to sleep almost arm locked with the other arm next to you. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So uh couple of things left. Um, I know you plan a lot of your own adventures. Obviously, MDS is an organized event, but you plan a lot of your own adventures. And the reason I wanted to chat about this is because, obviously, in the last 12 months, and probably for the next few months as well, a lot of the races and adventures we've all planned have, have been cancelled. And, and various people said, well, why don't, you know, why don't, um, why don't you think about organizing your own thing? So, Tell us about what, what you get out of planning your own adventures and there's sort of maybe more satisfaction out of completing something you've dreamt up rather than just filling in an entry form. Oh, I think it's great because it's not, I mean, you know, America is, I mean, I know it's a world record, but again, I sort of planned it. But I, I've also done um, across South Africa uh, as well. And, I, and there, well, a few other things, but I just think it's, for me, it's, all part of the package it's not just about doing the run itself mm. it's organizing it finding the routes doing the logistics 
chatting to people perhaps who've done something similar to find, you know, get as much advice as possible. So it's the whole package. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things we've discovered in, in sort of lockdown as well, you know, especially the first lockdown is actually little micro adventures, just going off and, you know, even, if, you know, just for the day um, or half a day, but, you know, going and trying out some public footpaths that you've never been down before, getting an OS map and just thinking, okay, well, where does that go? And just going and having a little adventure. So it doesn't have to be a massive great adventure. It can just be a little one. Um, I mean, I cycled down to Rye the other day. We did a slightly different route um, and with, with, with somebody else. And it actually was quite a nice day. And we, we got there and she went, we weren't actually going into Rye. And she went, she fancy a cup of coffee. Wow. Oh. I haven't had a cup of coffee out for, well, for as long as I can remember because this has been quite a weird, you know, year. So mm. we went and we got us a cup of coffee and we sat there doing our socially distanced bit and, we, and in the sun having a coffee. It could have been, by the time I got home, and it wasn't, a, it, it could have been a holiday. It felt like a mini mm. break. Mm-hmm. And that to me, that, that's a mini adventure, a micro adventure, just going off and doing something a bit different or trying something a bit different, you know, so. I, I have a group of friends and we, we did a, a cycle tour across the Pyrenees maybe eight to 10 years ago. And there was maybe a dozen of us and that was an organized trip. And then we got into thinking, well, actually we could organize our own, you know, we could get some drivers, we could plan our own accommodation and flights out there. And so we've cycled from, well, we did lands into John O'Groats and we did yeah. all our own route there. Um, we then, we, we were skiing in Austria and we've got another friend who's got a place in France and over a few bottles of wine. It's like, how far is it to yours then from here? Jez. And he said, Oh, it's about a thousand kilometers. Do you reckon we could cycle it? Well, it'd be quite hilly. Where would we go? Well, we'd go through Austria, through Switzerland, through the Alps, you know, down to here. Well, so of course, when we got home, people started idling the next year we cycled that one. Then, um, I thought, actually, I'd like to cycle in Italy. Why don't we go down from Austria because we can stay at Andy's house and go through the Dolomites and the Italian Alps and finish on Lake Como and then stay by Lake Garda and have a few days there. So that was two years ago. Last year, um, and rolled over to this year, which will probably become 2021, uh, 22 now, we were supposed to be riding from Austria down to Dubrovnik and going through um, past yep. Lake Bled and through the forests of, of sort of Slovenia and Croatia. So, um but, but it's the logistics, it's the planning, it's, it's the... It uh, right. takes so time. We've got 20 people, so how are we going to find a place here? Maybe there's a hostel here in the middle of the woods. No, I'm not doing that. I've seen the film. No, it'll be fun. You know, it's, you, you stay in this wooden shack that is like a youth hostel with one yeah. old caretaker there, and it's the best night of accommodation you've ever had. And it's, um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I totally agree, you know, getting a train out to somewhere and cycling back or cycling somewhere and getting the train back and... Uh, oh. I mean, even do I, do, I went and did coast to coast with, um, with a friend of mine a couple of years ago. And I mean, that was fantastic because mm-hmm. we literally, I left the house on my bike and we got, cycled to the train station, got the train, da, 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 anyway, did the route, cycled back, got home on my bike. Yeah. And you just think that was fantastic. There was no, well, apart from the train, but there were no cars involved. Mm-hmm. There was nothing. Um, and I really enjoyed that. So, you know, I know that I've got lots of little things planned for this year, but until we know, you know, what's going to happen, I'm not putting dates on any of them because, I mean, I've got one, one date fixed for next year, which is, um, well, this year and then next year. But I'm, next year I'm cycling. I'm doing something called the Trans Andes. So I'm cycling mm. 
across South America. Mm. Have you ever heard of Ride the Divide? I have, yes. Mm. I'm surprised that's not on your bucket list. Well, that's more mountainy, isn't it, though? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It just, I remember getting it, watching something and all of my adventurous mates that would be interested, I bought, a, I bought a DVD for each of them and then I sent it out in an envelope. I didn't tell them. I just sent it out with a little note going, what about this then? And there I got all of these, you're mad, but it looks great. When are we going? No, well, I have, I have looked at it. I have looked at it, but I think I need to, I need to get better. I've just started learning how to do my gravel biking because I've never done mountain biking. Mm. So, you know, I, I just do road. I did cycle the Pacific Coast Highway from Vancouver yeah. down to the Mexican border, which we did. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but it's, again, that was fun. I enjoyed that, getting the maps out, looking at the distance. We only had a certain amount of days that we could do it in. So, you know, you have to go a certain distance every day or you can, yeah. you know, some less, some more. But uh, oh, love it. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm not as confident on a bike as I was with my running, obviously. Mm. Uh, because a bike is not, you know, you go out running, it's just about you, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Whereas the bike, it's all the mechanical stuff that can go wrong. And I think sometimes I think, oh gosh, what happens if this? I mean, I can change a tire now and I can do a few things, but. Uh, yeah, things yeah. like that though, you know, ride the divide. You've almost got to become good at uh, re re-spoking a wheel or doing some welding if your crank falls off. Yeah, you see, there you go. You just put me off. <laughs> but I could learn. So no, you've learned to sw- you've learned to swim, Mimi, and you've overcome <laughs> that fear. Surely you could pick up a welding iron and uh, and um, and do some of that. So, I mean, I, I would put you down, Mimi, in 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 this project that I have of high performance humans. You to me epitomise this this whole ideal of a high performance human. And many of the people I've talked about in order to create the foundation for doing some of these amazing achievements that, that they um, have managed, have a sort of set of daily habits and routines. Do you, do you have any daily, apart from exercise, of course, do you have any other daily habits and routines that are in there that sort of keep you anchored and centred? No. Do you know? I don't think I do. No, um, no, medi- no meditation, no, no prayer, no know, gratitude. I, no. Oh, no. I mean, I always, I always like to think of, I mean, I'm quite a positive person. So I always like to think of the positives every day. You know, so every morning I come downstairs because I get the coffee in the morning. So at six o'clock I come downstairs and I am greeted by a very small Jack Russell who just anybody would think that she hadn't seen me for days. Yeah. And, you know, so that, you know, that's, that, I love that. So I, but I try and think about positives, you know, even if you've had a bad day. Mm. I will try and look for one positive, even if it was my first cup of coffee of the day. So I always try and do that. Um, but I think, you know, my sort of, yeah, I mean, I, I do exercise every single day. But uh, no, I think it's, it's more I try and look for the positives. I've tried meditating. Absolutely useless at it. I have tried. My sister is really good at that sort of thing and mm. has given me so many tips and has tried to help. Can't do it. I do struggle to switch my brain off. Um, so that doesn't work. So for me, just I think thinking of the positives or being outside, you know, I mm. think being outside really helps. Um, what about other stuff that you do to support your sporting activities? Um, yoga, strength and conditioning? I do that, but I don't, I do that only twice a week, two, possibly three times a week. Mm. Um, so I'm probably not very good at that, am I? Yoga again. Now, I did at one stage do. Um, I did hot yoga 
<laughs> a good good preparation for Death Valley, I suppose. I know, I know but I really enjoyed it. Um, and that yoga I really enjoyed. But so I'm going to, in fact, I was speaking to Tim um, Phyllis about this and because, and, of course, he does yoga. Yes. So I'm going to try some of his, I'm going to start small, just some of the stretches, I think. But I think, again, you know, just to mobilize my hips a little bit more and do that. So I'm going to try introducing that into not daily, because I think that's too much to ask, but at least a couple of times a week. So I do do that, but I don't, I've never thought of them as sort of habits, really. Mm. Um, but my positivity, I do try, and that is, you know, you can't be positive every single day, but I do try and find at least one positive every day. So I like to think that that is a... Yeah, I've got some friends who are religious. I did a, I did a podcast with a friend of mine who's an admiral in the US Navy's pilot. Um, and he, every morning he gets up and he writes in a gratitude diary. And I tried that. Somebody brought me one and, and I've found that um, it's just easier just to, just to sit and be grateful for certain things, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be complicated things. Like you say, it's yeah. just, I'm grateful for the fact that my Jack Russell greets me like he hasn't seen me for months every day. And that's the thing yes. about, that's the thing about dogs, isn't it? You know, that, that when you take them out for a walk, it's, it's just, they're so excited to be out. And then uh, they're so excited about the food and they're so excited to see you. That's, you know, the smell of coffee, the fact that you can smell coffee, the fact that you can have coffee, you can choose to have coffee is something to be grateful for. The fact that when you open your curtains, that, you know, you've got a beautiful, I can see your garden from here through the window. You've got oh, that's all my husband. I don't do any of that. But still, be grateful for the fact but that no, he makes it yeah. look nice so you can look out upon it. You know, it's um, Yeah, it's, he does tell me that all the time. But no, that is true. And I love, you know, today I went for a run around the village and um, there are two, two lovely old men in the village who walk down they do a sort of circuit of the village and they sort of walk either side of the road and I see them I run two days a week now and so every time I see them I always have to walk and have a chat to them because again it it's a it's such a lovely part of the day and I really enjoy it um so I don't care what my times are <laughs> I really don't care um but it's I just think it's important you can't just run past them no. Um, you know, so it's it's little things like that, or somebody saying hello to you, or you know, you say hello to somebody and they say back, or you smile at them, and you know, it's very simple things. So here's here's something uh, you, you just touched on there about your times. Uh, I've I've got some friends and colleagues who are very very accomplished coaches, and when we talk about running and what makes a good runner, they always circle back to this idea that you have to relish running. It's not about the watch. It's not about how far you ran. It's about enjoying the experience of running, sure. running through the woods, finding somewhere new to run. Um, when you were fully in training, um, was it enough for you just to run or were you motivated by Strava or what your watch said or getting your heart rate into a certain zone? Or is, no. is that when, when you're doing something like an ultra race, are those sorts of things really irrelevant to, the, to just the consistent process of running? Well, they are to me. Um, and in fact, before I went to America, I didn't uh, use Strava at all. Um, I hated the idea of people looking looking at my times and my stats because I mean I, I would very rarely um if I really had to then obviously if I was doing a specific session then I would um I would do it but no if I went out to run I went out to run hmm. um and yes I'd have my watch on because it would tell me how far I'd run and how long I'd been out but 
to me, that wasn't important. It was just trying to be fairly consistent with um, getting out and training and, as you say, enjoying it. I mean, you know, if, if you've got a, a coaching client who's just having a really bad time, really not, you know, enjoying the running um, and is consistently sort of panicking about times and, and all of that, you just say, actually, go out and run for the sake of running. Leave your watch at home and mm. just chill. And the best times that I've ever done in, in a race um, have tends to be when my watch has failed me. Um, but in endurance stuff, I don't tend to look at, not all the time, I do check it, but no, I prefer not to. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I hear many other people saying, you know, my best times are ones when my uh, Garmin packed up, so I couldn't yeah. see it. So I just went by feel. Oh, well, every time we talk about going by feel, people say yes, but if it's not for my watch, I don't know what I've done, you know, and you talked about the finish line and coming across the finish line when you, you know, that visualization you had about your, your family being there in the medal coming across the finish line like this. Yeah. And yet when I'm standing on the finish line at um, the outlaw events, 90% of the people are looking down at their watch. They d you don't even see their smiling face or the sort of wonder of the achievement that they've got. Oh, it's such and a shame. It is such a shame. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I use Strava now for my, my cycling. I call it bikling because I'm not a cyclist, <laughs> but I only do that because I don't understand it. So it's, it's, it's easy, isn't it? So, you know, anybody can look at my stats on my bike thing and I've got no idea at all. So that doesn't bother me, whereas my running, it sort of did. So, and I, but I never look at it. You know, it's there. But I don't, again, when I'm out biking, I mean, I don't have all, you know, I've got my thing that tells me where I'm going, but I don't have all the other bits and pieces. Oh, no. Well, Mimi, we've covered so much. Um, <laughs> I've, got, I've got two more things to ask you. Um, your biggest life lessons if you if you're going to leave people with three things that they think about that you've learnt from all of your adventures and experiences over the last well since in those 20 years since we first met what, what can you can you think of three well i think one of them is to uh you know in just, just in life is surround yourself with positive people people mm -hmm. who just make you feel good about yourself um, yeah, it's drains and radiators. You know, you can you can have a few drains in your life, and uh, they absolutely just pull you down. So I think with my running, the one thing it has taught me is you sound you know surround yourself by like-minded people, um, and that makes you feel positive um, and upbeat. I think the other thing as well is, especially with this you know <laughs> this last year, is adaptability. Mm -hmm. I think we all need to be adaptable. And, you know, because things don't always go to plan. So you can have a plan. You can have an idea of what it is that you want to do, whether that's in a race or in life. But it doesn't always work out that way. So that's fine. You can change it a little bit. Um, you know, it, it, there's nothing wrong with actually changing the way you get to your end goal. So adaptability. Um, and I had another one as well, and I can't remember what it is. It's just... I think the other one for me is as well is, you know, with everything that's gone on in my past is that doesn't define who you are. If you've had an eating disorder or you've had an abusive nanny that makes you feel shit about yourself, that doesn't define who you are. You know, I've again discovered, you know, I wasn't proud of myself before I started running. Yes, I mean, I had three beautiful children very proud of that and I have a lovely husband thankfully he still loves me so that's always good um, but I was never very proud of you know who I was or anything mm. but actually my running has taught me but actually do you know Mimi you're not so bad you're, you, you know you're, you're, you're an all right person yes of course I've got my faults 
but I'm an all right person. So it's taught me to love myself a little bit more. Um, and I think that's very important. If you don't love yourself, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's quite hard to love other people as well. Finally then, let's wrap up talking about your latest book, Limitless. Limitless, so yes. So what's, what's behind Limitless? I have got a copy of it here. Dana, Dana, I can show you. Is that the one that's going in the envelope to me? I can send you one, yes. It's back to front, isn't it? That's so depressing. No, no I can see that. Can you see that? Um, yep. It is, Limitless is about the build-up to America. It covers a few little things that was covered in Beyond Impossible, but that's just so it sort of makes sense about what we're talking about. Um, and the logistics and the training, um, and then about my run across America, and then what happened afterwards, the aftermath, as I like to call it. Um, mm. So it sort of takes you on a journey. Fantastic. So, well, hopefully, okay, yeah. hopefully we've set the seed for that journey today. And now, um, if you can tell people where they can get a copy of that book, I, I'm... I'm positive that they're going to hop straight off this podcast and onto yes. whatever it is and order a copy so where, where can they go and find it and we'll put that um, in you can get it from amazon and i think waterstones are doing it and i think a few other places but i'm not sure but mostly amazon mm-hmm. um and at some stage i'm going to be having copies as well so if people want signed copies well they can post them to me or and i'm quite happy to sign them and things as well but it is i've had i have had good feedback from it it's um people have really enjoyed it so that's you know, I'm, it's quite nerve-wracking putting out a book. You know, I, was, I couldn't understand why anybody would want my first book. Um, but, you know, that went down really, really well. So, and it, it was quite cathartic and uh, writing this one, actually, because of what happened to me. Um, I guess writing a book's a bit like doing an ultra, isn't it, really? You know, you can't think about, I've got, I've got 100,000 words to write. Just write one page today. And if you keep doing that for 100 days, you've got most of it down. I know, but I was quite lucky, actually, because I'm probably the most useless writer there is in the world. I can do blogs. And then my husband's going, Mimi, uh, you, you spelt that wrong or you did that. So I did this with Lucy. Lucy Waterloo was uh, fantastic. So she helped me with my other book as well. Mm-hmm. So Lucy and I would uh, – so during lockdown, actually, it was great. Lucy would ring me up um, or we would do a Skype session and we'd go through a chapter and it would take us a couple of hours or something. And, um, and then she'd write it up. And then uh, send it to me. Yeah, so oh no! Perhaps perhaps you should cut that a bit out now. The no, secret because I couldn't do that without her. You see, so there we go. No, no, no. she's an integral part of. my so, there, there, well, there's another lesson. Then is, is if you've got a book in you, you, you don't even have to write it yourself. You just have to team up with somebody and and spew out the ideas to them, and they can jot it all down for you. Absolutely, you do, you do it as a team. Perfect. Yeah. Teamwork, you see, surround Teamwork. yourself by like-minded people. Well, I think in any in any event, when you're the only one doing it, you can't do it without a team, can you? You know, you talked no, no. about Badwater and having your team there to make sure you get to the end. Um, and any athlete that's involved in a solo sport will say that that, that it was all about teamwork. So. Oh God, absolutely, and especially something like America or my my John O'Groats or my Irish thing. You know, if you don't have a good team yeah. of people. Um, you know, I mean, they literally do all the hard work. They do everything. When I got home from America, actually, I said to my husband, so uh, are you going to continue putting my clothes out for me every morning? Um, coffee in bed? And he looked at me and went as if I'd lost the plot completely. Because, of course, in America, all my kit was put out for me to put on the next day. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to do any cooking. I mean, I literally did nothing other than put one foot in front of the other. 
Um, mm. And they, they did everything else. I mean, their work was way, way harder um, and knackering. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've done support and I've done being the athlete and it's way easier being the athlete. It's, well, I think it is actually probably, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe it's been absolutely fabulous to catch up. I really, I really appreciate you coming on. I've really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, no, I've loved it, Simon. Thank you. Really enjoyed just, it. Just uh, on top of the book, um, where can people find you? I presume you inhabit all of the social media channels, do you, these days? Oh, I'm just appalling. I'm on um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So if you do Marvellous Mimi, mm. I'm at Marvellous Mimi for most of them. So okay well we'll put all of those in the show notes and uh, anything else you want to share with the listeners please let me know that and we'll put every single link in there we can find including the two books oh yes no that'd be fab thank you perfect well mimi anderson marvelous mimi anderson thank you so much again and listeners i hope you've enjoyed this conversation uh, please do go and have a look at the show notes if you want to find out more about mimi there's an awful lot we haven't talked about so uh, please go and take a look. And of course, make sure you get at least one of those books. Take care, Mimi. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. You're most welcome. Bye-bye now. Bye. Well, thank you to Mimi for joining me on today's High Performance Human Podcast. You can find links to just about everything we chatted about in the show notes below. Also, a reminder that if you are interested in being part of my SWAT Inner Circle, you can enjoy a 30-day trial period for just £1 please email beth at thetriathloncoach.com or just scroll below to look for the link in the show notes. So that's all for this week and we'll be back in seven days time with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high performance human in every aspect of your life. <laughs>